Welcome to Well and Good, a podcast about all things health and safety in the workplace. Brought to you by Skin Patrol, Australia's leading mobile skin cancer clinic. For more information, visit skinpatrol.com.au. All right, thanks for uh, joining us at episode two of Well and Good. And with me today is Dr. John Lang, who I proclaim is the most interesting man in healthcare. G'day, John. How are you going, Sam? That's a great intro. Thank you. <laughs> I'll try and live up to it. Well, yeah, well, I'll tell you what, you do have a fascinating background and I do want to get to that. But I thought what would be good is to start with a couple of really interesting things I've heard you talk about, which are relevant to almost everyone in society. And then we can parlay those back into workplace health uh, as we go through and, and talk a little bit more about workplace health. You are probably the only person in health that I have heard stand up and talk about the benefits of mo- low to moderate, probably low, alcohol consumption. Yep. So... I've got a graph here and we're going to put it up on the show notes. And the, Well, I'll let you explain what the graph is and, and, and what it means. So talk to me about alcohol and, and what, are the, what are the real numbers say as opposed to what, what we hear in messaging. Okay, so you've got essentially two things with alcoholic beverages. The, the health impacts are mediated either the, by the effect of ethyl alcohol on HDL levels, the so-called good cholesterol, now, alcohol raises HDLs generally, a specific subfraction called H- HDL2 that prevents cardiovascular disease risk. And that's why just about every major study shows modest alcohol consumption reduces, significantly reduces cardiovascular disease risk. Um, but some beverages, of course, made from grapes have the ad- additional phenolic flavonoids, polyphenolics, and, uh, and other compounds which uh, have certain antioxidant capacity. And look, I heard a great story uh, how how to get this message across to people. You know, grapes have a great life. You know, they hang loose on a bush for 300 days. That's the ripening time of the average grape, and they sunbake. So they're bombarded with by ultraviolet radiation and. Uh, because they would develop cancers like humans develop cancers with uh, ultraviolet radiation, but they have evolved over many millennia to have these protective chemicals in their skin that act as natural ultraviolet blocking agents. Guess what? They're the f- they're phenolic compounds, phenolic flavonoids, antioxidants. When you make white wine, because the, the, the colouring is in the skin, you make white wine by crushing the grapes and taking the skin straight out. But with red wine, you leave them in to allow the colouring to leach out. And with that comes all those protective elements. So when you consume uh, red wine, it's like sunscreen for your insides. So, so in fact, you know, wine and red wine in particular has anti-carcinogenic properties, uh, but, but the ethyl alcohol will have the um, effect on HDLs and positive lipid profiles, etc. So people ask me, well, if it's all about the grapes, why don't you just drink grape juice? Well, grape juice doesn't have alcohol, and uh, and so you need to get the, the HDL effect there. So uh, you probably have seen the, the Interheart study, one of the um, great studies that uh, on 52 countries, hundreds of thousands of people, um, all of whom admitted to casualty with acute myocardial infarcts, uh, pulling that data over many years from around the, the 52 participating countries, they uh, were able to ascertain the entire global burden of cardiovascular d- disease was down to nine items. And in fact, the three positives, what positive ones were fruit and vegetable consumption and alcohol consumption. And the relative risk, uh, re- risk reduction with uh, alcohol consumption uh, is significant. Uh, so, so before people go out and start celebrating and cracking open a bottle of red for dinner every night, 
At what point do the benefits of alcohol consumption become detrimental to our health? Is there is there a, a daily limit or what do the studies tell us? Yeah. Well, there's one question that remains unanswered by the studies, and that is whether the issue is the uh, net amount of alcohol consumed or the blood alcohol reading attained. So in other words, drinking a bottle of red in an hour is different to drinking a bottle of red over four or five hours. You know, I'm sure a lot of, uh, you know, people will work their full day, come home, crack a red, um, you know, maybe have a glass before dinner, a glass with her, and a couple after dinner, they, they may even knock off the bottle, but it could be over five hours. And the, there was a question over whether they'd even get a blood alcohol of 0.05 at that point. And uh, that's not like being in a shout at the pub where you're, you're running through uh, with a dozen mates a, a, right. quick, a quick round <laughs> to get home in time for dinner. So that's an unanswered question. But in general, um, You've got a, there's a, what we call a biphasic risk response. There is a lowering in, in uh, all-cause mortality around about one to two drinks a day that then rises up and somewhere around three to four drinks a day it exceeds the zero alcohol. So in other words, three to four gives you the roughly equivalent of value of a teetotaler mm-hmm. and then it escalates up in quite an exponential fashion. And that's mainly because the uh, increase in risk of the cancer. So all of the, the whole gastro... Uh, the elementary canal cancers, so mouth, esophagus, stomach, colon, rectum, plus liver and breast all go up with alcohol consumption. But at less than three to four drinks a day, the cardiovascular risk reduction effect is greater than the increase in cancer effect. And then that um, beyond four to five, that uh, that benefit is uh, is outweighed with the, the cancer outweighs the cardiovascular risk. So are you telling me that if I'm going to have a, a drink or two, that red wine is superior to having a beer or to having a, a vodka or something along those lines? Yep. So you've got red wine better than white, better than beer, better than spirits in that order. And uh, part of the nature of spirits is, you know, alcohol is a highly, you know, astringent substance. And essentially, if you drink straight spirits, uh, the mouth and esophageal and stomach cancer rates increase significantly and you need to remember that you know you use uh, alcohol swabs to you know as, a, as an anesthetic for a reason it kills things right. <laughs> strong alcohol does okay so so we've identified that we we can have a, a drink or two it's interesting that those statistics are never published is that because uh the powers that be promoting any form of alcohol consumption is perceived to be too risky for the broader society yeah they have treated us, uh, you know, the nanny state at work. They suppressed data and anyone that wants to look at how how much data was suppressed only needs to go to the NH and MRC publication July 2009 when the Australian guidelines for alcohol were reduced from four and two for men and women respectively down to two and two. And what they did, uh, an enormous amount of literature reviewed and everything and put in this 136 page publication that was released by the, the federal government. Um, if you look at that, you'll see they did two things. Number one, they added in uh, a new category into their calculations, and that was death by misadventure. So they added in car accidents, suicides, and murder. Now, to me, uh, you know, I don't want that included in my calculation of risk because I'm quite happy I'm not going to top myself or my wife and I don't drink drive and so mm-hmm. I shouldn't have to have an alcohol guideline based on the, the inclusion of those things. might be more relevant for, you know, a rev-haired 18-year-old. 16-year-old, yeah. That's right. Um, but I, I think that should be stripped out. It wasn't there before. They added it in and that was the reason that the, um, 
the guideline for males was halved. And then they suppressed all the data on the alcohol benefits. There's one particularly telling table in that uh, that publication when you look at it, uh, where it looks at the relative risk from naught to ten standard drinks a day of alcohol, and uh, in columns naught to eight, they have asterisks. And when you read the footnote, asterisk says no detrimental effect uh, 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 found. Uh, and positive benefits are not taken into consideration in this calculation. And so they've suppressed the benefit. And to me, that's like saying, well, I'm only going to consider the negative effects of cycling, which is you could be fall off and all be hit by a car. So we're not going to advocate advocate cycling. You have to include the positive with the negative. They didn't do it. And it's an indictment of, uh, you know, whoever, well, the NH and MRC for suppressing data that they clearly had. Now, I've been trying to get this information from them under Freedom of Information for some time. They're still suppressing it. This is six years later. Uh, Look, I I think that's just good for people to understand because you do hear in the news all sorts of, you know, one week it's good for you, one week it's bad for you. But the numbers are if you are having one or two a day, uh, it, it can have some benefits. But what about when we talk about aesthetics? So let's say I am having one to three standard drinks a day, which by the numbers says there are some health benefits in that. Is there any chance that I can maintain a half-decent figure if I'm drinking uh, three glasses of wine a day? Yeah, well, you know, it's the net the net calorie intake that's the biggest impact here. And, you know, carbohydrates, proteins, about four calories per gram, fats nine, alcohol's in the middle at seven. So it is, um, and they're hollow calories. So you often don't get that energy with the alcohol with a lot of other good things you would get if you're eating the fruits and vegetables for the same amount. So uh, there is that issue that if um, if alcohol, the calories from alcohol is replacing other more nutritious sources, then that can be an issue. But as I said, if you've got red wine, there at least is some, uh, you know, good antioxidant uh, stuff happening there. So what's the answer? If I'm eating a, a good diet and I'm having a couple of glasses of wine, Yep. Is that going to prohibit me from having a six-pack? <laughs> no, not at all. No, um, no you, the, the, the net contribution, keep in mind two to three standard drinks a, a day and add in a couple of AFDs and you know, alcohol-free days. They've become you know, folklore almost in the alcohol literature. Uh, there's no, been no study published anywhere in the world that has ever shown abstaining from alcohol for two days is of a health benefit. So why the hell is it in the guidelines? And when you dig dig into it, you find out that they really took a leaf out of the smoking uh, book here that um, addictive behaviours, uh, if you or habitual behaviours, so consumption patterns that you do every day can spiral out of control unless you put some logical breaks in the consumption cycle. And so if you... So two becomes three, becomes four, becomes five, becomes... Well, it's just that you do it every day without thinking, and so it becomes a habitual pattern that you replay over and over again, and so it's out of your consciousness and it's not a decision you make to drink. It's a decision that is the default setting, and and that can, as you say, spiral out of control during periods of you know higher stress and... Uh, Etc. So the two alcohol-free days puts a, puts a natural break in the consumption cycle. You actually actually have to actively say, "Well, th- this is a day I don't drink," and mm-hmm. that break in the habitual cycle can stop the um, the addiction spiraling out of control during tougher times. Right. It's also a, a proof to yourself that you're not a dependent. You know, you're not dependent on it every day. Well, I think a big caveat here as well is people need to really look at what size 
of wine glass that they use because it's pretty easy to say, well, I, I mean, my sister's a doctor. She got a good story where they had an old lady came in. She was 80 and they suspected she was an alcoholic and they asked her, well, you know, what? how much alcohol do you drink a day? She said, oh, I just have the one glass a day, one glass of port. And my sister thought, that's a little strange. She said, what, 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 what size glass do you drink? Oh, a pint. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. Ah, uh, yes, the, the little old ladies in their port. My ninety-three-year-old uh, grandmother was similar. She she complained that she can't couldn't handle alcohol as well as she used to, you know. And um, when I cracked a, she asked me to get a new bottle for her out of the uh, the box in the bedroom. And it was port. She didn't know it, right. so she was drinking. She'd subbed port for red wine oh. and never actually picked up when that had happened. Right. <laughs> All right. So the numbers tell us that having a glass of wine is okay. So you can relax about that. Now the the numbers aren't are interesting but not so good for smokers. So this is another one which you talked about which I thought was fascinating and that was, uh, well, I'll let you explain it, but my layman's understanding of it was if you smoke 20 cigarettes a day and you cut down to five, the reduction in your risk is minimal uh, until you go well and truly under five cigarettes. Now, I don't smoke. I don't condone smoking. Uh, I don't think anyone should smoke if they can avoid it. But if you do smoke, explain the numbers to people um, so they understand about how they can reduce their risk. Sure. Yeah, look, this, this is uh, to do with the concept of dose response. There's a certain amount of smoking that has a certain amount of impact on your health. And People, uh, in the absence of other data, will logically assume the relationship is linear. You smoke twice as much, you're at twice the risk. Well, that's not the case with smoking. It's uh, essentially what we call a saturation uh, curve. And to to use another analogy, uh, if you have a headache, you take two Panadol, right? Why don't you take 10? Because the box says don't take any more than two. <laughs> well, all cells have Panadol receptors on them, and once you have two or three Panadol, you, all the receptors are bound, and therefore that's the maximum effect you can have. You saturated the system, you've bound the receptors. There is 10, 10 Panadol doesn't do you any more good. Right. So same sort of saturation effect with uh, with smoking. At, um, but it reaches the saturation point at a relatively low level. In fact, if you look at a 40, 40 per day smoker versus a five per day smoker, the 40 a day smoker is double the risk of a five a day smoker. So here's the, the difference in the logical person says the 40 should be eight times mm-hmm. the risk of the, of the five and they're not. And no one, for, for a long time, no one bothered to look at the very low end of the curve. What is happening to people that are smoking one or two cigarettes a day or even one or two a week? And you find that um, two to three cigarettes a week right. uh, has that impact. Uh, of course, it goes up 15, 20-fold when you get to 20 or 40 a day. But I suppose the, what you take home from that message is that cutting down is not an option. Quitting is the only game in town for smoking because there is no level of smoking that is associated with, uh, with no risk or, or low risk. Um, and the, as I said, the studies have started to look at that uh, very low end of the spectrum. But we use that in a uh, – I suppose when you're counselling uh, smokers about giving up, it's, it's the way you couch the message is, you know, you're on your way to zero here, not on your way to five thinking you've succeeded. Right. And so you're trying to put that goal in mind that, the, you know, it's not a cut-down issue. Because I, I think it's unfathomable that, that that message isn't more widely discussed because it would feel that that is going to help people really cut down their smoking if they understood that message. I've never seen that message until I heard you talk about it. Yeah, and uh, when I talked about it, I showed the graphs, uh, you know, that explode, you know, exploded out that naught to 5 region of the, of the 
of the the dose response curve for for heart disease, etc. And look, I th- it's it's interesting. There are you can tell people to sm- stop smoking, and some of them will, uh, or you can give people the information, and they will take it on board. And that's a much more powerful behaviour modifier. Having people make the decision based on informed choice from uh, accurate, rele- relevant, current data. And I think sometimes, uh, you know, the government uh, and other a lot of people in the industry miss out on that latter message that uh, the best form of behaviour change is people self-managing their behaviour in light of knowledge and facts, and, and that's what we call health literacy. And any health promotion and wellness program is always targeting high, you know, improvements in health literacy because that enables you to, to make better decisions and know why to make them and that feeds into the sustainability of the, the behaviour change, etc. We'll talk about weight and um, weight loss a little later, but um, when you talk about education around weight loss, uh, I read a book called um, The Business of Being Fat, or the, the obesity, it was on obesity crisis, and the person who wrote that book really countered the claim that education helps in the case of obesity because her point was if it's all about education or that's the key component. Why are there fat doctors and why are there fat dietitians and nutritionists? How would you counter that that statement? Yeah, it's interesting. Um, I've been dealing with some big data sets around the globe uh, lately and uh, had uh, cause to look at the relationship between IQ and BMI, for instance, and there isn't one. We know that obesity does follow a socio-demogra- socio-demographic p- profile. Uh, you know, I need to look at um, the big retail um, groups like Woolworths and Coles know the buying habits according to postcode and right. uh, you know what people the lower socioeconomic groups are buying in terms of filling their their trolley every week is very different to what you you're getting in the the upper class suburbs right. and you think that's partly down to education or is it the cost of the goods it's cheap i mean i think it's a bit of a fallacy that it's it's cheaper to buy junk than it is to buy healthy food I know it is. It's a, the studies have been done on that as well. But why? So why? To quote a, the, the title of a famous paper: Why do poor people behave poorly when it comes to health choices? And from a psychological perspective, it's it's very interesting. Um, you're familiar with the concept of uh, emotional intelligence? Mm-hmm. You know, that's uh, you know, emotionally intelligent people are good at things like impulse control and delayed gratification. So, if I'm I've got high e, I high EQ, high emotional intelligence, I can walk past the hot food bar on the way to get my salad sandwich on multigrain with my apple and my bottle of water. Mm-hmm. Right? If I've got low impulse control, I'm into the hot chips and dimmies before you know it. Right. So what is there about impulse control and this thing called delayed gratification? Delayed gratification is about putting off choices, uh, not doing things now in, in pursuit of a bigger reward later. Now, not eating something that you enjoy the taste of is not doing something now that you might enjoy because you're in pursuit of a bigger goal. That bigger goal is a, uh, you know, a six-pack uh, uh, avoidance bikini of obesity, body. a bikini body, and also it's, uh, you know, lower, better blood pressure, cholesterol, less risk of diabetes, heart disease, the whole bit moving forward. Now, relate this back to socioeconomic status, poorer people tend, tend to be less able to uh, envisage the, their ideal future. They are very much more living for the moment. They don't see super as a good investment you right. know, because super is so far off, it's not in, their, uh, you know, in their, their mind. They tend to make those hedonistic in-the-moment decisions through that lack of projection forward. You know, if you look at something like education, uh, most 20-year-olds would rather travel and party than study 
but a lot of them do study because that uh, education, that degree, uh, that income stream and a career path for life is the thing that will get them what they want. But it entails certain, you know, hard decisions to make now to persist with something that, uh, you know, uh, is not ideal. Yeah. But that's where success in life lies, the uh, suppression of those things in pursuit of uh, bigger goals. And it's the thing that the lower socioeconomic groups haven't had the role models in their home to, uh, you know, amongst their parents who may not have got the education and just everything cycles round. So is, to emo- is emotional intelligence a learned then? No, emotional intelligence can certainly be taught and uh, we know that from some fascinating studies in, you know, in New York uh, some years ago when they started teaching EQ skills in New York high schools back in the 80s. They were looking at the... Um, the, the toxic uh, waste products of a, you know, the lower socioeconomic groups in New York. And their outcome measures were uh, hospitalisations for drug overdose, teenage pregnancies and abortions, etc. And teaching at EQ is a part of the curriculum in these schools actually dramatically lowered all those things. Right. And what it did was it gave the kids uh, another language to talk to each other about... Uh, health-related issues and communication that didn't involve uh, guns and knives. I've never heard the term emotional intelligence bandied around in a workplace health setting. Is that something that we can introduce in a workplace health setting? Absolutely. Uh, It's probably the defining feature of people who successfully self-manage their behaviours. They they have uh, a whole suite of... um, attributes and skills that fit under the heading of EQ, and I mentioned a couple of them, uh, you know, impulse control and delayed gratification, which are fundamental to good health. You know, if you can't control the urge to uh, eat the pavlova or the, uh, you know, the dim sim, mm-hmm. uh, you've got uh, a very, uh, very poor chance of <laughs> maintaining good health throughout your life. Right. Uh, and delayed gratification, of course, um, as it putting things off in the pursuit of bigger and more important uh, life goals is uh, is a foundation stone of successful people. So, have you ever seen a workplace health program that uh, has successfully included emotional intelligence as part of the course or curriculum or program? Yep, it's uh, well, it was one that uh, I designed and delivered uh, to numerous organisations, uh, and I. I'm sure they won't mind me mentioning that it was part of the programs at Woolworths, Westpac, mm-hmm. um, you know, Santos, uh, Federal Treasury even did it. But it was about the classic eat well, keep fit, manage stress, don't smoke pillars of good health. But uh, the fundamental behavioural underpinning of it was about emotional intelligence, what it is, how it's those skills are universal. It's not uh, EQ skills don't just help with uh, what you eat and your exercise habits. They help you in relationships like some of the, um, you know, communication skills and um, reading uh, interaction in social groups these are high level skills maybe we, maybe we can do an uh, emotional intelligence masterclass one day honestly that master that program was called mastering life I actually wrote a book about it in right. 2002 called read life read uh, life read life as in a um, re re right life it's a memo to you regarding your life okay <laughs> and uh, uh, available in online or bookstores yeah, um, it was published by Prentice Hall subsequently taken over by penguin but uh, you can get it online uh, I did that um, mastering life workshop for dozens of companies and thousands, many thousands of people. But 
they often it's a full day workshop, but they often people wanted to know more, so I wrote the book as the the follow up. Right. But, uh, the the entire thing is uh, comes at it the, from a, an EQ perspective and an emotional intelligence. Okay, so we've we've tackled two of the big ones: alcohol and smoking. And, and in smoking, you talked about this concept of dose response. And dose response uh, has a, an interesting application, I guess, as well when it comes to exercise and the benefits of high-intensity exercise over low-intensity exercise. So can you explain to us a little bit about, um, you know, how individuals vary and, and what high and low intensity, what that impact has on your weight and general health? Sure. Um, okay, so... People know that you know casual walking is relatively easy, and if you've got them to score it on a scale of ten, uh, what we call a Borg scale, they might rate it at two or three. Ask them to exercise moderately, and they'd push it up to five or six, and you know eight and nine gets you into the heavy to extreme sort of exercise. What we know now is that um, up at the in the intense range, a whole lot of additional benefits occur. And to give you an example. Uh, the insulin sensitivity effect, which is the precursor to diabetes, diabetes, type 2 diabetes is essentially a disease where your body becomes non-responsive to the effects of your, your insulin. There's a, a fascinating study published in the um, MS, Medicine Science in Sports and Exercise Journal, the Journal of the ACSM, the American College of Sports Medicine, and they found that in people walking 6.8 kilometres an hour or quicker their metformin use, in other words, the diabetic medication use, was 80% lower in those people than people walking at um, 4.2 kilometres an hour. So here's exercise intensity uh, having a massive five-fold difference uh, impact on uh, insulin sensitivity and therefore diabetes risk. I don't know of a diabetes nurse educator and endocrinologist working in the di- diabetes space that factors that into their exercise prescription. So, so let's talk about that for a second. I walk to work every day. Yep. And I'm a I'm a bit of a plotter. I mean, I, I run a lot, so my walk to work is really just I like to do it to freshen my mind. If I walk to work quicker, mm-hmm. not that much quicker. I mean, you're talking four to six. It's not. It's not like I'm sprinting or power walking. The benefit of that walk is going to go up. It, it could double, double or triple. Yes, right. And that's look, power walking from you know it started off what thirty years ago or more. It's it's taken us there because a lot of people are not everyone's going to run. We know that, but uh, fortunately, as you the the quicker you you walk, the energy expenditure goes up exponentially. And so, doubling walking speed does not double energy expenditure. It probably triples it. And does that ever plateau? Like, let's say I walk on average today four point five kilometres an hour. I've got no idea what I do walk per hour. Uh, Preferred walking speed is about five k's an hour. Okay, so let's say I I up that to six six and a half. Yep. And I walk at six and a half k's every day for the next year. At the end of the year, am I still getting as much benefit by walking as 6.5 or does my body start adjusting and now I've got to keep going up and up and up? Yeah, theory of progressive overload. So once you've accommodated in terms of the uh, all the enzyme systems in your aerobics you know, the system, uh, Krebs cycle and all that sort of stuff, once they've responded to that new exercise intensity, they will plateau unless you change one of the three variables, frequency, duration or intensity. Um, most people don't want to keep on adding extra time into their workout because that ultimately means they just end up with long workouts. Mm-hmm. Um, frequency, you know, once you do it daily, training twice a day is not an option for most people. So it leaves intensity as the, the go-to place for in, continued improvements. And so 
In the ideal world, yes, people would walk faster and eventually have to run because right. the energy. Uh, but walking quite briskly, um, and there are things you can do here. Um, I, I, for many years, loved the company of training with my wife. Now, I was a three-hour marathoner and she was a four-hour marathoner, so our running speeds were a little bit different. So when I trained with her, I had two-kilogram hand weights. That right. added 15 beats a minute to my heart rate while I was jogging and allowed me to have the social interaction with her while training. Uh, jogging on the beach with her, I just you know, run in the soft sand next to her in the harder intertidal region. So right. there are ways we can, you know, load up the intensity a bit by doing certain things, the hill, you know, couple, the A couple hill. of bricks in your handbag on the way to work. Yeah, that's right. And, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's a hard one, you know. Are you going to carry, you know, two kilogram weights to work every day and back? It's, uh, it's probably not on the no. agenda, but... Well, you do see people walking to work with all sorts of stuff they're carrying around so i guess they're on they're on this information train yeah and of course if you're losing weight your uh your energy expenditure at any given walking speed is lower anyway right so so ultimately you have to run okay all right um so there's two more big ones i think in terms of personal interest and then we're going to talk a little bit about your background and go more into the corporate health programs of which this is all related anyway um, coffee is something which, as a society, we have become obsessed with and people enjoy a coffee in the morning and there's nothing wrong with that. We do hear a lot of noise around, is it good for you, is it bad for you, just like um, uh, alcohol. What do the numbers tell us about coffee? Well, the numbers tell us that coffee is a wonder drug or caffeine's a wonder drug um, that has a lot of health benefits, like some of the risk reduction in things like liver and kidney cancer exceed 50%, uh, reduction in type 2 diabetes risk 70%. Um, These are massive changes that are more powerful than most of the effects you see from diet and exercise, yet no one advocates coffee consumption, and I still don't get why. Yeah, why is that? (laughs) there seems to be a you know prevailing thought that anything that we enjoy must be bad for us, and uh, you know. Do, do you think it's it's partly? I mean, what I despise in healthcare is X Y Z's a wonder food or a superfood, mm. and then two years later they turn around and say, "New study, it'll give you cancer." Yeah. <laughs> is there a fear that people are saying, "Oh, coffee's got all these great benefits. There's got to be something bad there, so we better not get on the bandwagon and tell people to drink it until there's a new study that says it's going to give you cancer." Yeah. Well, now uh, I have one particular slide I use in a presentation that gives you a, a sixteen or eighteen benefits of alcohol, and I've probably got twenty five references there over the last quarter of a century, all from quality peer reviewed. Uh, well, I've, know, got, I've got that in front of me, and it's uh, I'll read them out. Risk of reduced risk of gallstones, Parkinson's disease, uh, type two diabetes, liver cirrhosis, mouth, breast, prostate cancer, cardiovascular disease, dental caries, cavities. Yeah, caries. Yeah, I've never heard of them. Car- a cavity called a carry before. Yeah, that's their uh, technical name. Gout. Does anyone get gout anymore? I thought that was only kings that got gout. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> no, well, gout. Well, a lot of those things, like you know, gallstones, kidney stones, gout, arthritis. Uh, I, I call them. Um, diseases of con- concentrated fluids, right? right. Okay. Uh, think back to high school. Remember you used to grow crystals? Yeah, yeah. Okay. What do you need to grow a crystal? A, a saturated solution or a supersaturated solution. So you saturate it so much that it uh, precipitates out and it forms a, a crystal. Now, that tells you that concentrated solutions form crystals. Gout is caused by uric acid crystals in the joints and the course it's when uric acid exceeds exceeds its solubility coefficient that it crystallizes out why is this related to coffee well coffee got a bad rap for being a diuretic 
caffeine is a diuretic. Well, it's a diuretic meaning it makes you it reduces your ability to hold water, right? Diuretic makes you pee. Yeah, yeah, that's right. But it, when that caffeine is a diuretic, coffee is caffeine plus water. So you're adding a diuretic to a fluid. That's not a, not something that dehydrates you. That's that's a flushing agent. Right. And so if you're having four or five cups of coffee a day, you're actually giving yourself something that's forcing a lot of fluid through the system. That's if you're drinking it, not milky coffees. That's right. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And, you know, sure, the, you've got to take account the, the milk, the fat, the, the you know, lactose tolerance and all the other issues. But at the end of the day, the you know, that four or five cups a day is where the sweet spot is for risk reduction on all those things. And where's, so we, we, we have that graph which tells us there's, there are incremental benefits up to two and then they start heading back towards the baseline of zero. What about coffee? There must be a point at which coffee isn't good for you if you're having – well, it's not going to help you sleep, I guess, if you're drinking it in the afternoon. That's well, one <laughs> side effect. Okay, so there's a bit of individual differences here. There's a, a gene called um, CYP1A2, and that's the gene that uh, is part of the cytochrome P450 group that uh, help metabolise toxic substances. There are two versions of it, and if you have the, um, the less active version – you're the pe- one of the ones that can't drink coffee in the afternoon or after dinner and sleep. And are they, are they the same people that get feel really hyper when they have a coffee? So there's the various levels of sensitivity. That's right. They're unable to metabolise it quickly, so you've got the capacity for building up because you're not uh, right. breaking it down quick enough. So if you uh, – we talk about the uh, the half-life of caffeine is about eight hours in an average person. So the cup of coffee you have at 10 o'clock in the morning, at six in the afternoon, half of the caffeine you consumed is still in your blood. If you are, uh, have the active version of the gene, that'll be a lot lower. Um, if The inactive version, probably a lot higher. But it, uh, if you have other things that have damaged your liver, for instance, if you're a, a, an alcoholic with mild liver damage, the half-life of caffeine in that situation can push out to 20 to 24 hours. And so you can't metabolise half the caffeine you consume in any given day. And so your whole life is spent, you know, building up caffeine right. levels. And, that, you know, it's the only reason those people can sleep at all is they consume enough alcohol to not, you know, <laughs> overcome the, the stimulating effect of the caffeine. So, so for most people, is, the, is there a number or is there a, you know, how, many, how much is too much coffee? Generally speaking, uh, two to three, four cups a day is fine if you're, um, if you're sensitive to the stimulating effects, make sure they're in the morning, you know. Uh, I can drink coffee and sleep fine, so it doesn't worry me. But I still tend to have, you know, one in the morning in the car on the way to work, one at work, you know, and uh, one in mid-morning. So mm-hmm. I'm three up before I hit lunch. Right. And then, uh, you know, the mid-afternoon to help with the slump. An extreme amount, you know, once you get up to six, seven, eight coffees a day, there are some increase in some cancer risks. And uh, as uh, the number's been crunched by the American Cancer Society on that. And uh, you've got to remember, increase in cancer risk for when the risk is low is still a low risk. Okay, so last one on the personal side before we start talking about workplace health, uh, sleep and fatigue, or sleep, let's concentrate on sleep. What, what are the numbers and all the research uh, tell us about sleep, how important it is and how many hours sleep the average person should be aiming to achieve in an evening? Okay, so on the probably the biggest study ever done, uh, a million people surveyed uh, and followed, followed up... Um, published in the um, Scandinavian journal. But the low point in the risk curve is around is seven to eight hours a night. So that's uh, 
if you assign that group a, a risk of one, by the time you get over nine hours or under uh, six, you're actually double or triple the all-cause mortality risk. So there is a, it's a U-shaped curve, and the bottom of the U is the um, the seven to eight hours. Again, a little bit of individual variability there. But uh, so, what are you saying that if you sleep more than nine hours, you're you 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 have risks that are not dissimilar to people who sleep less than seven? That's right. Right. And that is a said a doubling or tripling of all-cause mortality risk. Um, yeah, actually, the publication was the Archives of General Psychology, 1972, if anyone wants to look it up. So the um, so that's the low point, the risk curve. The, there is a question mark over those people that do sleep nine and ten hours where it's a chicken and egg issue. Is a, 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 an existing uh, psychological condition causing them to sleep longer and, they, and, they, and that, that condition also affects their lifestyle so they die younger? Right. Uh, so is the call, which happens first, or is it the long sleep causing the... Um, the alteration. We know that certain things happen to your metabolism and um, uh, you know, and brain function and immune function in particular with uh, your sleep cycle. All right, great. Well, mate, I, I think we've cleared up some of the big ticket personal health yeah. items for people. Probably just if I had one more thing yeah, on the, the sleep. Just uh, so on the the sleep issue, we know that um, lack of sleep is immunosuppressive, and that's important because. If you were exposed to an, a pathogen during the day, your body mounts most of its response to that pathogen during the early hours of the next morning. Okay, so that's the. Um, so, for, what, for, just explain pathogen for people that don't oh, understand it. Pathogen is a virus or bacteria, a disease causing agent. Mm-hmm. Okay, so. Um, so if I am exposed to a, someone coughs in my general direction during the day and I pick up a flu bug, my system doesn't respond en masse to that straight away. It's during my sleep cycle, and particularly uh, the uh, the, stage three and four sleep, that most of the immune response occurs. If I don't sleep well, my immune response is compromised, and I'm therefore likely to succumb to that bug. Now, as you would know, being in flu vaccinations, just about everyone's exposed to the bug, not everyone gets it, and so people will fight it off. They have a subclinical experience that never manifests itself as symptoms. We know that uh, people who alter time zones are susceptible, like people who come back from overseas trips and they come land in Australia, they get sick within a day or two and they think they caught a bug on the plane. Well, they didn't catch a bug on the plane. They were awake when they should have been asleep making antibodies to the, right. the, the flu virus or the cold bug or whatever. And so, um, and if you look at how stress and sleep sort of impact on one another, the most common reason people give for not getting a good night's sleep is simply intrusive thoughts. What are intrusive thoughts? Well, they are actually part and parcel of you know of psychological stress, the worried of the what ifs and the worry. And so here's the relationship between s- stress, quality of sleep, immune function, and disease risk. And that's why you've got this nice triad of things uh, you know all working together for bad health outcomes. So, I mean, sleep is really not something that is widely addressed in corporate health is that because do you think it's just because it's outside work hours and people yeah. think oh it's not relevant yeah look it, it is a lot of the time but it's funny it's come they come at it from an oh and s perspective of fatigue risk yeah fatigue uh that's right risk in of industrial accidents injuries and that sort of stuff we you know in health and wellness we come at it more from a health and disease risk perspective not a um, productivity and uh, performance issue but uh, you know, we all know that um, you know if you don't have a good night's sleep, your performance is well and truly under par. 
and mm. uh, it's there are some great studies that show that it probably costs the Australian economy in excess of three billion dollars a year of lost productivity. You know, so it's a it is a big ticket item. Let's talk a little bit about your background. Uh, we first came across each other probably ten years ago when I started Skin Patrol and. You were you were deep into a career of, of corporate wellness. So, I mean, what, give us a snapshot just to paint a picture for people on uh, what your career in the corporate wellness industry has been. Okay, so b- prior to being in corporate wellness, I was a, a professional musician. So uh, they didn't pay the bills, however, and uh, I saw lots of musos way better than I would ever be uh, still out of work. So... I indulged one of my other passions, which was academia. Uh, I did a, an undergrad degree in phys ed, um, and that wasn't enough. I actually went out and taught phys ed for a, and I did a double major phys ed and maths. So I taught phys ed and maths in the Victorian High School um, in North Dandenong for a couple of years, and then opted out to go back to uni, masters in physiology and biochemistry, and a PhD in medicine. So the uh, brown shorts and white socks back then. <laughs> I just uh, we were. Stubbies and thongs mainly. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Yeah, so that was um, – and I expected to see out my days as a, an academic. Um, I graduated the Monash Med Faculty with my PhD in uh, 87, 88, and I was all set to go to the Muscle Research Institute in Oslo in Norway to work with Professor Dirk Petty in my chosen area of uh, uh, the interaction between actin and myosin. And he died, and so I was left without a postdoctoral fellowship. And uh, one thing led to another. I got together with another guy, and we started up a little business in corporate health, uh, based out of South Melbourne in 1986. It was called EHS uh, Enterprise Health Solutions. And um, because we're both, uh, I always say that between Dennis, my partner, and I, we had uh, eight degrees. Well, I had three, he had five. But right. I, I said if we had eight people to assume four each maybe yeah. look better and uh <laughs> smart but uh he was a smart boy and uh we actually uh our whole um our stress testing facility with the ecg and the oxygen uh testing stuff was all voice control so we could actually in 1986 talk to our computers and get them to run a test of verbal command right. so you tell the treadmill to start or increase slope or you know do all that sort of stuff it was amazing that those businessmen uh, that we were dealing with could go back to work and say, hey, you want to see these guys talk to their computers? It's, right. It's, so that, it's was, that was how you, uh, you you built the business, by being techie? Yeah, they built on a very technical background. In fact, the uh, the, the equipment we had, uh, the Gould 9000 rolling dry seal system, was the best in the country at the time. And even uh, the AIS in Canberra used to send us their top rowers and everything for because we had the only high-speed zirconia oxide furnace in the country to do breath-by-breath VO2 max testing. So right. uh, we got into it. And the, the execs quite liked the fact that they were jumping on the treadmill after one of the awesome foursome or, you know, one of the top AFL footballers or whatever because mm-hmm. so, um, we used to look after all them. And so, yeah, I essentially did that for the next, that was 86, so that'd be, next year would be 30 years in the in the industry. And uh, during that time with various, you know, health insurers like HBA, the, the, the precursor to, um, to Bupa these days, and uh, uh, National Mutual and AXA and, uh, and so forth through Good Health Solutions and Alia, et cetera, I think... I've got 17 business cards from the various right. companies I've worked with in that 30-year period. And now you're the CEO of WA, which is the Workplace Health Association of Australia. What What's the function there that you play? So WA was uh, about 
eight or nine years ago, well, sorry, 10 or 11 years ago, I was a little concerned or a lot concerned that our industry was uh, not really, it was directionless and we were backstabbing each other. And when you say our industry, you mean the workplace health The, the corporate industry. wellness industry, yeah. And all the providers were, um, we didn't you know, talk or communicate. We were enemies, arch enemies. And, uh, and of course, it, it was a very, it was a bad culture that was evolving from that. And there was one particular meeting I had with a, um, a Deputy Minister for Health in Canberra where uh, it was mentioned that our industry, of the corporate wellness business, was uh, like unregulated rabble. Right. That was the actual term used by a, a minister, unregulated rabble. So As opposed to the government, which is a regulated rabble. <laughs> exactly. So that was a bit of a shot across the bows because I was uh, you know, trying to get them to see the light that what we do is important, important part of the health continuum of healthcare and, and, and particularly in the preventative side of things, that the work environment is a wonderful um, setting in which to practice prevention. You've got a captive audience. You've got working Australians, working Australians average four risk factors per person. So there's plenty of scope to put in interventions to mitigate those risks. So I was trying to get the government to see the light and help with some funding support and uh, they said, well, we have no, uh, you're unregulated rabble and we have no guarantee you won't spend that money on tarot card reading, right. essentially. And so after that, I uh, I called the, a meeting with all the major players in the, the uh, corporate wellness space and I said, look, you know, the government would like to help out, but, you know, there's no guarantee that the money spent in our industry will deliver outcomes because we don't have a coordinated approach, blah, blah, blah. So we formed what... Uh, what became known as HAPIA, HAPIA uh, the Health and Productivity Institute of Australia. We got on top of standards and accreditation, ethical business practice, best practice guidelines, and we as a, a group all agreed to a minimum standard of evidence-based in our practices, the NH and MRC Level 3C guidelines for evidence-based practices. And we went back to the government and said, well, you know, we heard what you said about unregulated rebel. Now we're regulated and less rebel. And they said, no, we're already, we're supporting the tarot card reading industry. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they were, look, they responded, the things like the Victorian Work Health Program and the um, COAG funding for the National Partnerships uh, Agreement on Preventative Health and those sort of things would never have happened. While the Workplace Health Association is now the rebranded Happier, it's uh, 10 years on, and I think in October this year, we've got our ninth annual conference and, uh, you know, an incredible lineup of speakers and papers and so forth. And it really is a, it gives me, you know, uh, a great feeling to think I was part of something that did change our industry for the better and got on top of a lot of things um, that we really did need to and uh, formed the basis of a, a viable industry for all of us going forward. So for people who are listening to this, is WAR somewhere they should go if they're looking to have a corporate healthcare provider? Is that a good place to go and find who are the people that are members and, you know, yeah. sign up to these minimum standards? Sure. Our members probably constitute 90% of the provider network in the country. Uh, they're all they're members because they're committed to the standards and the the, the best practice guidelines and so forth. So there is some, uh, I suppose, guarantee of credibility and quality that you have there. Uh, we're launching, we're moving into uh, training and accreditation to support that next mm -hmm. uh, next year, starting February. And because uh, what we see is uh, in a lot of companies, uh, you know, a mid-level HR person will be assigned the wellness responsibility, but they don't know much about wellness. And so um, they piece together something that uh, looks good to them, but, you know, from a very naive standpoint. Um, 
so the training is mainly targeted at those people say if you want to run a really good program we've got the guidelines uh, the best practice uh, you know we can train you how to do that and right. you won't end up having a whole program evolved around calls to a you know a quit line or lifeline you sure. know you've been in the game a long time um, and you know health numbers and research better than anyone I've come across tell us a little bit about your own personal health mantra <laughs> Okay, this is uh, in relation to a discussion we had just before uh, recording start, wasn't well, it? Well, just in general. I mean, I'm interested, a man who knows so much about health, and you are a fit-looking guy, and I know you do run some marathons, but what? how do you sort of think about health and how do you live your life to be healthy and live long, if that's a goal? Yeah, sure. Look, um, it's interesting, the personal journey, uh, you know, I hate case studies because I'm a scientist, but uh, seeing you ask the question. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Look, I think uh, I do, like a lot of people who are sort of higher performers, you, there's a little bit of obsessive compulsive about me. And uh, throughout my life, uh, I've really, whatever I've put my mind to, it's been 100%. And uh, so uh, the things that I've done in my life, I've tend to, you know, it's, it's an all or nothing approach. But I found that... Um, you know, married with a mortgage and a couple of kids, uh, you know, responsibility, broadening of responsibilities. Uh, the whole uh, health management industry was coming at things from this life balance perspective and uh, that bit of introspection that I was having about my life and its lack of balance. Uh, pivotal point in my life, I decided to become obsessed with balance and it's a funny thing that uh, almost paradoxical that you're obsessed with getting to the middle ground of everything and not excelling in any anything, mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, which is counterintuitive for me. Um, I published a book in 2002, but you know the uh, again it was one of the things on my bucket list of uh, things to excel at. I had to be a published author and yeah. uh, and, and so forth. But um, these days, um, passionate about balance, so I am not a vegetarian marathon runner uh, you know I eat reasonably well but I do break out I in my compulsive days I was a, a I was a compulsive marathoner I've done 19 marathons and there was a stage I was uh, running one every two to three weeks you know right. <laughs> there was one particular month where I ran uh, I ran a, a 308 marathon I thought oh that's close to three hours two weeks later I fronted up to go try and go sub three hours and I ran um uh, 309 and then I fronted up two weeks later and ran 310 I thought oh well this isn't working <laughs> so I backed off for uh, the back-to-back marathons for six months and came back with a 252 so right. that, was, that was a bit better. So you say you say it's about balance but I you know in previous conversations um, I, I suspect you're you're a bit of an experimenter and a tinkerer with your own health and and you mentioned to me recently that you had been experimenting with a 5-2 diet which is two days of not eating at all. So tell us a little bit about that and how you found that. Yeah, well, again, I, I don't mind being my own guinea pig for things that have some uh, scientific efficacy. And so I did read the, the literature and uh, it turns out, I suppose uh, we were led to believe when, you know, in the earlier days, like 20 years ago, fasting was bad for you. And in fact, prolonged fasting, you know, metabolic ketosis, the, those ketones bodies destroy the basal ganglia of your brain and cause precocious dementia. And there's a whole lot of bad things that happen with fasting. But, you know, one or two days of fasting uh, it doesn't take you there. Um, but I just, I found the literature was quite supportive from the health point of view. Um, and the, when I started doing it, I found uh, a a degree of mental clarity occurs on the days that you you know you fast, particularly on your second day. And for those people that have you know done things like lumosity type brain training, where you've got a you know a, 
a score that you get every day for various uh, cognitive challenges, challenges etc. You know, my fasting days are always the best, right. and uh, which is um, again, I'm a case study of one, so I'm not claiming yeah, sure. to, claiming that, but but it works for you. It works for me. Um, it does interfere with the training a little bit because I might. I fast on Monday and Tuesday, uh, and so if I'm out for the afternoon run on the Tuesday, not having eaten, um, it's a it's a tougher slog. But of course, I'm forced to. There's not much blood glucose there, so I'm forced to burn fat as a fuel. Those fat metabolizing enzymes, the um, for those of you biochemists in the audience, you know the uh, liver protein lipase alpha. <laughs> Probably not too many, mate. I don't think. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the uh, all those uh, enzymes. They uh, they. Take, get a big boost and of course you become a great fat burner which right. um, it stimulates these things called futile cycles um, which uh, uh, futile cycles are it's a forward and backward pathway of a metabolic cycle that generates heat without any movement and so you when you generate heat without moving you're actually burning energy and managing your weight while right. you sleep and it's uh, so uh, yeah, look, uh, I got back from a holiday in the Kimberleys last year, had over 90 kilos. I'm 77 now, and it's mainly wow. off that two-day fasting, regular training, and, uh, you know, it's uh, it's, it tends to work for me. And I don't know if you've had a chat to people who have done it. It seems yeah, to... Yeah, I have had a chat to a few people. So some people, obviously, they struggle too much with it. Yeah. So I, I personally don't do it, but it, it is interesting. But how do you compare that to a fad diet, which is... Um, you know, no sugar, paleo, those types of things. I made a calculation once about, uh, you know, if you take your, your top three women's magazines in this country and how many diets they produce per annum uh, over the course of 30 years, there's something like 800 diets. If any one of those worked and was sustainable, they would have dominated the market, but they haven't. So, yeah. um, you know, we've been in and out of so many diets over so many years. Um, the uh, the biggest thing for me is what do you do the day you stop that diet? So it's it's... It's a, it's a lifelong commitment, and that's where nutritionists generally hate the whole concept of a diet. It's um, From a behavioural perspective, um, there's a, the behavioural change model that we use often in wellness called the stages of readiness model, and people go from pre-contemplation, contemplation, preparation, action, and on to maintenance. A diet is an action tool. Okay, but it's still one critical step short of the holy grail of all behaviour change, and that is maintenance. Right. Maintenance is about eating habits. Okay, so unless you develop eating habits, uh, you've got no way of ensuring sustainability and a long-term healthy lifestyle based around your chosen diet. And so most of the the diets, because they are diets, uh, they uh, that don't allow you to develop long-term eating habits. You know how many. You know, go through Scarsdale, um, you know, the, mm-hmm. the Beverly Hills, the Fit for Life, you know, and Harvey Diamond, you know, one of the highest um, selling diet books in the world, uh, written by uh, a guy with no qualifications whatsoever. <laughs> whatsoever. I mean, a diet for a lot of, I think diets for me are um, people wanting a magic bullet. There is no magic bullet, as you say. It's a, it's a lifelong commitment to good choice and probably comes back to what we discussed before, um, Maybe a higher level of emotional intelligence. Mm. Yeah, the, the the people that get it right tend to, um, you know, they never talk about diets. For them, it's all about what they do, you know, naturally and what they've uh, the habits they've developed. Yeah. It's, uh, but it but it always worries me if it's uh, it's got to be written down on paper. It's unsustainable. So let's say I I put you in charge. I gave you a job, and you were uh, looking after the health of two hundred employees. Mm-hmm. 
and I said to you, you've only got, and this is probably quite a healthy budget, I gave you a budget of 75 bucks a person. Yeah, seven, yeah okay. Right. Now, is there something in corporate health which you believe is like a mainstay that everyone should do, or is corporate health like individual health, and, and we're all different? Do you really need to understand the cohort of your workers, what the key health problems are, and devise something for each and every organisation because they are individual? Oh, good question. If you base it around a, a platform that is flexible, uh, individuals can uh, sort of write their own uh, material into the template you provide. Now, I mentioned the Mastering Life program uh, earlier. Uh, the, the beauty of that program is it looks to, looked at your eight life areas, physical and psychological health, career, family, finances, knowledge and learning, um, social life, etc. It asks people to... Um, self-rate the importance of each of those areas and then ask people to self-rate uh, their satisfaction with those areas. So immediately you've got a two scores per area and I would say over a decade of running that program, possibly 90% of all people that did it, the biggest difference between value and satisfaction was in physical health. That is, they value their physical health highly, they're not happy, they're not satisfied with how it is. So that is a what in behavioural psychology is called a consciousness-raising exercise and it's known to be the thing that moves pre-contemplators to contemplate behaviour change and progresses them into action and maintenance according to that stages of change or the, the trans-theoretical model. And the beauty of the, that framework is that not all people were about physical health. Sometimes it was psychological health. Sometimes it was about family time. And uh, sometimes it was about knowledge and learning. So the beauty of Mastering Life was that people would leave that one-day workshop uh, and go and pick up extra, uh, enrol in some extra learning and knowledge to further their career paths because that was identified as their hotspots. Now, that, if they get all that right, guess what? You know, they're they're ab- much more able to get their the health and health behavioural health behaviours right as well. So there's an example of a uh, you're not having to write the script per individual here, but you're providing people. It's like teaching them to fish rather than giving them the fish. You're providing them with the tools um, based around EQ, emotional intelligence, about uh, decision making, and all so that. Which sort of, of the eight pillars is most important to them to work on, and that's then right. give them the tools to go away and work on it. And I guess. If I work on one pillar this year and I fix that up next year, I do the same test and the results could be completely different. That's right. right. And you work on you've you've fixed up your 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 worst performing area. You move on to your next worst performing area, and over time you you balance it all out into a, a lovely balanced lifestyle. Right. And of course, you know you've got a whole lot of um, little sort of psychometric things you can do along the way. You uh, you've got the I mentioned the stages of readiness, but uh, you know the, um, you often we would ask people how. Um, Self-efficacy, you know, how much do they believe they can make the change? Because you're after, uh, you, you don't want to encourage people to make certain changes if their confidence level is low. Because if that's the case, failure, failure rates high, and then they beat themselves up for failure, and their confidence level diminishes further. And yeah. so, you breed that very poor self-efficacy mindset. And this relates, you know, back to something we discussed earlier about socioeconomic status and health behaviours and why people behave poorly. The um, smoking prevalence is extremely low in uh, the elite white collar professions of accounting and law, somewhere down around two to three percent. That's way under the national average of fourteen to sixteen, and um, way, way, way under the uh, eighteen to twenty-one year old uneducated female smoking statistics, which exceeds forty percent. So that's a that's a 20-fold difference in smoking prevalence. And when you think about it from the perspective of um, 
self-efficacy. The young, uh, young, less educated girls have not had a track record of success. They haven't successfully negotiated school and university and career and other things. And so they don't have the can-do mindset and it doesn't feed into high levels of um, uh, expectation of success. You know, they approach things with, I'm going to give it a try. Whereas, you know, the the more senior people, school, university behind them, a career path and a a positive mindset, when they take on a, a challenge, it is with full expectation of all the whistles and bells and success at the end of the day. And that's why they do so much better. Are you saying to me that you think from a wellness point of view, I'm not talking about risk mitigation, if you have to do some things because you're um, legally required to, that you think a program that you go, you would deploy must have an element of individualisation where people can understand where it is they want to improve and then be empowered to go and make those changes? Yep, certainly. And, uh, you know, if you wanted to limit it more to the physical and psychological health, your obvious entry point is something like a HRA, mm-hmm. uh, you know, health risk assessment. And, um Having said that, there's you know there's only generally three things that people find out in that they didn't already know, and they're the three uh, you know blood pressure, cholesterol, blood glucose. Everything else they knew before they walked in the door. They know whether they smoke, they know whether they're fit or fat, and uh, mm-hmm. their exercise habits, etc. They know what their family history like. So it's like so. I think it's um, we probably overplay a lot of the that component of the HRA, which is regurgitating back to people what they told us. Yeah, if you don't give them a care pathway, what's the point of telling them they're overweight if they already know it, right? That's right. So the, there's a, a slide in your deck, and you you attended a Global Trends in Workplace meeting, and you put a little sign up there over one of the speakers that says, nothing new here, sorry. <laughs> so, I mean, tell us about your journey over the last 10 years. You, is it, are you, Do you think there's been no innovation in workplace health, or you think that people just keep spitting out the same stuff? I mean, do you think it's a... Is it, a, is it a, an improved world today in workplace health than what it was 10 years ago or 20 years ago? Certainly over you know 20 years, there's a lot of good things happened. The, the, the movement um, to base things around a solid behavioural framework. Uh, we used to think that if we told people to do things, they would do them. Thou shalt not smoke. And then you know, you'd be disillusioned next year, next year when you went back and there were smokers. Why did you do that? I told you not to. <laughs> And so you had to move away from a very, you know, autocratic style if you're going to succeed to base uh, your interventions around the, a behavioural framework that is known to work. And, of course, the trans-theoretical model was developed by Prochaska and DiClemente for smoking, so that was its original target. Um, so subsequent, I think it was late... Uh, Around about 1998, 99, we, for, you know, when I was running one of the wellness businesses, we first adopted that, and I only saw it because I happened to be in the at an IHPM conference in um, in Florida, and I bought it back, and uh, you know, it's of course it's used by everyone in the industry now, but that has been uh, important. But I think the um, I suppose the you know in modern times we haven't embraced a lot of the technology and it's still very siloed so uh, the bits don't talk to each other both within a company the HR not talking to OH and S um, um, you know and, and the various managers not talking and you've got these breaks in the cycle that um, you know if you identify someone with a, a clinical issue in a, a health check for instance you refer them to their their GP. And that's they disappear into the black hole. You have no knowledge of what happens, mm-hmm. you know, whether the risk is uh, managed or not. You don't even know whether they attended. And so, 
I'm hopeful that in the future we will have that continuity of care where you know the that referral to the GP what they do can be feed, fed back into our systems and so we can report back to the company that we identif- identified this person and you know in our industry one in every 12 people that is assessed uh, is referred to their GP for a clinically relevant finding and we never find out about what happens so it'd be great to report back to the company the success rates there that would is part of the problem it's almost like you know, as a society, we want to make changes, but every three years there's a possibility of a changing government, and trying to get consistency in policy is almost impo- is almost impossible. Mm. And I see that a little bit in in the corporate world, where you might have an OHNS manager who comes on who's got a particular bee in their bonnet about smoking or whatever it may be, um, and then two years later, one year later, three, three years later, a new person comes in, and part of that psyche is well, I don't want to do what the last person did. I need to stamp my own, mm. you know, change and my own f- philosophy on workplace health. And so everything changes again. So there's no consistency over time. It's it's all about health and wellness. And then next time it's all about, you know, something else. Yep. You, do you see that? Yeah. And certainly that the, the uh, sort of specialist, the special areas of uh, each of the incumbents, be they CEOs writing the script or um, the HR heads or whatever. But there's also a, something that I think is more insidious, and that is, as an industry, we do keep delivering the same workshops, you know, year in, year out. And now, you know, you went to university, did you, um, would you have accepted a second year subject that was the same as the first year and a third year subject the same as the first year you would you know you expect progressive learning and in year two there's an assumed knowledge base from year one that you build on and so if you're going to do a nutrition workshop for a company like many of the big companies have had wellness programs running for um Mm -hmm. you know 10 12 15 years or more uh they should be up to like you know PhDs in nutrition now, some of those people. Well, no, it it comes back to what you were saying before in in terms of if I walk to work every day and I don't change something, Mm. nothing's going to change. So if you go and deliver the same program every year, well, what are you expecting? What's going to change? I mean, innovating in in the corporate health and wellness market um, doesn't really happen in my observation. Mm. I think we've seen a little bit of you know, minor innovation around the internet of things and people trying to implement, you know, some of these monitors, whether they're Fitbits or other. Why do you think innovation is hard? Is it because the marketplace doesn't value it? Is it because a lot of people just want to tick a box and say, yes, we've we've run a program? Why is innovating hard? (laughs) Well, innovating's hard. In anything. In anything. And one of the We've almost made it a bit difficult for ourselves by, uh, as an industry, committing to evidence-based approaches. So anyone that creates something new, is it's not evidence-based anymore. And therefore you have to, you know, theoretically you'd do that under the auspice of a, uh, an academic institution in a clinical trial and you would publish outcomes and then it becomes a validated, uh, you know, in the peer-reviewed literature and then you're at liberty to do it. But then again, so is everyone else. So you lost your competitive advantage and your, your early mover advantage, et cetera. So... Um, having said that, um, you know, often in uh, corporate health, we're, we're not inventing brand new stuff. We're hybridising a lot of stuff that is uh, peer-reviewed, mainstream sort of stuff. And so, you know, we tend to uh, 
adapt, you know, bits of, you know, nutrition and exercise science together with the behavioural science and add in the, uh, the social networking construct and the gamification sort of stuff. And so our industry has become so multidisciplinary to get your head around all those areas. You know, it, it's like you're, you need to be six specialists in one. The... Um, and, you know, I always used to think the domain of health and well-being should be a psychologist domain because at the end of the day it is all about behaviour. Well, let's talk about that because I think I think one area that does need changing is there is a greater awareness of mental health in society. Mm. Um, yet in the corporate landscape, the default position is an EAP. Yep. And EAPs are not well utilised Um and and people say, well, if we've got an EAP, we're addressing mental health. What what's your take on mental health and EAPs, and and just generally that landscape of stress, anxiety, depression? Well, well, look, the numbers speak for themselves. You've got EAP utilisation rates that are quoted, uh, depending on which company you look at, but somewhere around three to five percent per annum of people, you know, access EAP. Uh, you look at the prevalence of mental health issues in the workplace; it's at least five times that, if not ten times that. Okay, so that means the majority of people who would benefit from psychological assistance are not getting it via their EAP provider. That that's that's QED end of story. And and do you think that is because it is so closely aligned to the employer that if you use an EAP, that that may get back to the employer and 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 curtail your employment prospects? No, I think the issue is more to do with um, EAP is an expensive, you know, it's a one-on-one consult with a highly paid professional. So, you you know, you're often, you're talking about $100, $150 an hour for that sort of thing uh, after, you know, the on costs and other things. So it's always going to be limited to the pointy end of the psychological spectrum, the, you know... The, the acute. The, the acute, okay. Um, because it's not cost... It, Companies would not wear the cost of delivering that to 30 or 40% of their employees who may benefit from it. So what do you do for that group, that, that big bit of the bell curve in the middle that are not um, so bad that they're, you know, jumping on the triple O number or whatever, but they could benefit from it. The, your average, you know, workshop on resilience and stress management isn't going to cut it for them. So there's that's a, a space that's sort of missing in the, the service delivery models of both EAP and wellness. And I think there's what I think will happen here. There is a lot of very interesting online training and learning uh, in the neuroplasticity space. So, uh, you know, there is a, I've seen a recent one that's quite uh, remarkable. Uh, p- often people who are stressed have a pervasive pessimistic thinking style. And so it's that always thinking worst case scenario, you know, wife's late home, having an affair, Mm. (laughs) and they jump to those uh, irrational conclusions. Now, a very simple 10-minute, three times a week brain training activity based around moving you from a uh, negative bias to a positive bias has dramatic effects on the way you perceive daily events that would have uh, once caused you stress. That gets delivered for dollars a head per annum. Um, And what's that program called? um, Well, it's it's actually, I forget its name. It's been um, the subject of a few interesting documentaries. It's been, and uh, the most recent one I saw was of uh, Michael Mosley. He does mm-hmm. those exposés, but he actually did the functional magnetic resonance imaging before and after the, the training for uh, to make his pervasive pessimistic thinking style into the positive one. And all he was required to do was look at a matrix of 16 faces 
one of which was smiling and 15 were frowning and you have to pick out the smiling one. So you're, you're training your brain to look for positive cues in your environment. Now, three times 10 minutes a week after you know, four or six weeks, the areas of his brain that were associated with positive um, positive thoughts and feelings lit up like a Christmas tree, okay, right. on you know right where they should in, and right where they're, they're known to... In, in other words, the brain was rewired or remapped in a way consistent with the outcomes he was getting, which was thinking about things more positively. Now, that's one of many of these sorts of things that's now happening in the... Now that we understand neuroplasticity a bit more. Um, on that, I, I mean... I, I I truly believe that that with a little bit of work and effort and thought, almost anything you want to address in the workplace can be achieved to some degree at not much expense. Mm. I mean, I I would set myself a challenge if I was made the you know well-being manager of a large organisation. I, I would list the things that I most want to address, and I would find solutions for under twenty bucks a person. Mm. And I think with a bit of help, I mean, you might need someone to come in and help advise you. I think they're out there these days. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, look, we chatted about this recently that, uh, you know, does the literature tell us there's a difference in outcomes when weight management programs are run by lay people from within the company or specialist external, you know, nutritionists? There is, the literature says no difference. Yeah. Okay. So, and... It caused me to look at some of the interventions, one of which was I found quite interesting, was uh, the majority of people that lose weight successfully in their life do, do not use professional help to do it. They reach, uh, you know, what in behavioural psychology I refer to as the magic moment. It's that they are receptive to a message like, you know, uh, that Monday morning they wake up and the, the last of their big skirts won't fit them anymore. They're facing the prospect of a whole new wardrobe and they think, oh, this is it, I've got to do something about it. What they do... Um, it will generally fit into the move more, eat less basket in, mm-hmm. in some permutation. Um, and, of course, that's, they're the seeds of success there. But these people um, construct their own solutions, which they pers- persist in the long term. And I've, I found this company that had actually gone to all the people that had successfully lost weight and asked them to write their story. And they made a manual out of it. And uh, other people, the company could read about it. So these are people they know. They've seen it happen in front of them. That you know, going from the size sixteen to the size eight, and uh, etc. And it's so, so that that I mean, again, that's something you can do for nothing. Nothing, exactly. Free. It's a free initiative. Yeah. Go and pick ten people in the organisation who've lost some weight and who are happy to tell their story. Mm-hmm. Maybe you want to spend a little bit of money, create a video of it. Yep, that's right. And uh, yeah, I don't even know whether you, you know, they had to be successful or else they wouldn't have got the weight. They had to do something that was. Um, achieve the outcome yeah. or else they wouldn't be telling the story. And probably for those people, once they've told that story, that's a big driver for them oh. to maintain it, right? All of a sudden, you don't want to be the person who's yeah. who's talking up, talking about your success and then that's right. six they've months come, later you put all the weight back on. They've come out. And uh, and that's a, it's an interesting personality thing. Some people, um, again, myself and my wife, you know, I talked about the training together. Yeah. When, I, when I'm when I register to run a marathon, I tell it all and sundry because at 
help strengthen my resolve to do it and do it well because I know I'm going to have to tell them the outcome. Right. You know, my my wife won't tell anyone until she's <laughs> got it done and done. So, and that's the difference between a, an ENTP and an ISFJ on the old Myers-Briggs things. You know, I get a lot of my drive to do things by, you know, from an external environment. It's probably why I'm a musician. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, Whereas she's inter- intrinsically motivated. So, so, so when, when you're – if you are a person who's running health and wellbeing programs – if you're running a program that is across the whole organisation, so let's call it, uh, let's say it was a weight loss program, um, the, you've got a, what's well, probably not yours, uh, it, there's a model called the Program Attributes Benefit Model, which, which, which should probably, uh, would be wise for people to understand and maybe plug their own numbers in to try and determine well, what does success look like, which I don't think a lot of people do before they run a program. So tell us a little bit about that and, and how you could use that to... Um yeah. Well, this is uh, the beauty of the uh, the Program Attributable Benefits model. That was published by Roy Shepard in 1982 in uh, the Medicine, Science, Sports and Exercise Journal, which is the journal of the ACSM, the American College of Sports Medicine. So... And the beauty of it, simplicity personified, he said, basically the outcomes of any program are a function of four variables, um, if I remember them correctly. First of all, prevalence of need. Correct. Uh, how much? It's like a test for your <laughs> cognitive impairment. <laughs> yeah. So prevalence of need. Um, so how much need is there? If you've got a, you know, a staff full of vegetarian marathon runners, it might be low level of need or more likely they're overweight, hypertensive, alcoholic smokers with great need. Right. <laughs> um, then you have uh, so that's prevalence of need um, participation. Participation. So if they have a need, they've got to front up. Okay. So and therein lies the issue around the marketing and promotion of the program and making it relevant for people. Now you've got forty percent of the population are pre-contemplative with any behaviour change, you know, such as smoking and weight loss, and so it becomes an issue. How do you target a program for people who aren't receptive to the message? And there are ways to do that. You know. Mm-hmm. If you want a non, if you want a pre-contemplative smoker to attend an information session on smoking, you market it in terms of, you know, it could be a poster that says, "Hey, not thinking of quitting." You don't couch it in terms of, "Hey, thinking of quitting," because they're going to look at that and say, "No, I'm yeah. not thinking of quitting." But hey, um, not thinking of quitting, and people say, "Well, yeah, I'm not thinking of quitting." Well, read, well, read on. Well, read on, and it's, it, the footnote says, "Well, you're what we call a pre-contemplator, and you are here because," and you put the psychological piece out there of uh, where you fit into this trans-theoretical model, what are the attributes of a person this stage, people will read that and identify with it because it'll go tick, 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 yes, 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 these people know me and they've sent a message out that talks to me. So they'll be much more likely to, those 40% of pre-contemplative smokers will be much likely more likely to attend the information session, which at least gets you to the contemplation stage, which opens up a whole arsenal of other in, uh, sort of strategies that you can use. So anyway, so that's you've got prevalence of need, you've got participation, so they've got to front up. If they do front up, if they have a need and they attend, you have to meet their needs. And so that is all about the content, um, tailoring, uh, it's the, the humour and the, you know, the way it's all put together and delivered, obviously. And at the end of the day, they need to make behaviour changes as a, as a result of that. And the, the way, the, the simple view of the model, if you only have half the people have a need and half of them front up, half of them have their needs met and half of them make a lasting change, you've got a one-sixteenth program of tributal benefit. Which, which means is, which is what, 5 to 7%, oh, a little bit under... What one, is it? One, 
one sixteenth. Uh, that'll be s- six or seven percent of them. Yeah, that's, that's so right. Six or seven percent of people will. Participate and to use your seventy-five dollars a head. Let's say you're spending a hundred dollars a head on your program for a, a behaviour change in one out of every sixteen dollars. That's one out of every uh, sixteen employees. That's costing you sixteen hundred dollars per unit of behaviour change. Right? You'd be far better off just taking a thousand bucks, walking around your office, finding the nearest fat person, say, "Here, I'll give you a grand if you lose some weight." That will get you a better ROI for your program outcome than all the other stuff you did. Right. <laughs> okay. Just a straight financial reward. Yeah. Uh, and that's how the numbers fall. But most no company's going to do that. Yeah. Uh, but it does... Well, what if you get them to lose the weight and then make a video on how they did it? <laughs> ah, yeah, yeah. So the, the upshot of it all is that, according to that model, you need to uh, understand the prevalence of need, and that means auditing your, your staff with a, um, you know, a HRA or something similar. Yeah. You need to uh, get the, the marketing arm of your business to fully support it and have multiple channels channels to, to market and promote and all the spin you Test can Test your do. messaging, understand what works, what doesn't. Yeah, that's right. And then, of course, meeting the needs, you know, often choice of a provider, quality provider who does knows this stuff and um, and meeting the needs uh, of the people and it needs to be based in that solid behavioural framework that li- increases the likelihood of behaviour change. Add in the things like the motivational, motivational messing, re- messaging, reward structures, social networking and all those things that uh, improve sustainability of behaviour of behaviour change and, and, and health outcomes. So there are a lot of more complex models around, but that one for me just keeps on coming back that any program I deliver, if I can look at those four variables, I've got a good feel for whether it's uh, where its strengths and deficiencies may lie. All right. Well, we, we've been going for a long time, so I'm cognizant of uh, you've probably got better things to do than sit around talking to me all day. So let, let's go out on... Um What's the future for health in the workplace? Where do you see, you know, where do you think we'll be in 10 years? Do you think as employers we will have more, better tools at our disposal to help people with their with their health and their life goals and stress and mental health? Yeah. Look, you know, I think it's a it, – it was already an imperative as far as, you know, our industry is concerned and all, all the players – it's becoming more so because you've got the, uh, the alignment of all the, f- the, the factors, the ageing workforce, the uh, increasing prevalence of obesity, poor mental health. Now, these, this is the, all, the train wreck that's just waiting to happen. Um, if you look at the, the very basic metrics that you know, a risk factor in, a, in an employee knocks 2.5% off their productivity and the average employee has four risk factors, there's 10% of productivity loss across the board for Australia, the Australian workforce as a whole. That's just makes us uncompetitive, you know. Mm-hmm. And so it needs to be looked at from that perspective. Um, and in the future, I think, um, you know, introducing, you've got everyone everyone has a smartphone these days. It's going to be the health support system of the future. And so your online health portals must be able to speak to them, your activity monitors, you know, in fact, you know, drop their data into them and to be able to put people together in social networks and so forth. Uh, we ran a program many years ago that tried to form walking groups um, based on postcode because walking groups don't always work well from work because we know showers or, you know, yep. whatever. So linking a big company up to all the people in their region where they could meet at a park, you know, half a dozen of them meet at a park that's close to their, their postcode. 
Anyway, after that successfully ran for about six months, I was chatting to someone at this company and I referred to this uh, this website we'd created for them. And they said, oh, you mean the dating site? <laughs> <laughs> and so the reason all the walking was happening was... Oh, guy, people getting it on at lunchtime. Yeah. Well, that's probably good for your heart, isn't it? Making yeah. out at lunch? Oh, no, the, the guys <laughs> were look, checking out the, the good-looking girls in, uh, in their postcode area and right, inviting right, them along right. for the morning walk and getting yeah, to right. know them sort of thing. So, I like the sound yeah, of that. Unintended consequences. But um, look, the, the idea... IT sort of stuff and the integration with, uh, you know, um, OH&S, et cetera. And the, just, there are so many uh, apps and things available that uh, I often think if you ran a service for a, um, ran a business that had uh, checked out all the apps, what they do and their outcomes and put together a health promotion program based around solely smartphone apps. I, I say to people all the time in healthcare, I mean, I work in health outside of corporate health, and I say to providers, if you're not on someone's phone or you don't plan to be on people's phone, your service, you, you're dead. Look, it's uh, apps, you know, how long have we had the term now? Uh, but they have proliferated a lot in the last four or five years, and I think we're, you know, possibly at the stage where uh, that wave of... Uh, of development work is about to you know make its way into our our setting but, mm-hmm. and and it should yeah all right john uh mate we could talk for hours and i'm sure we'll get you back at some point in the future and uh i believe you're going to give us a a riff or we may have already heard it at the start of this so thanks for that you're welcome i appreciate your time and if people want to find you uh where can they find you like you on twitter or you or what's your email address so I'll probably go to the WAR website, so uh, the workplace www.workplacehealth.org.au, and I'm the, the CEO there. So you can, if you click on the contact, uh, that'll go to the CEO at workplacehealth.org.au. And do, do you, are you available to corporates if they ring you up and they say, "Hey, we'd love to get you out and advise our our board or our senior management on a workplace health initiative"? Is that the sort of thing you do? Yep, uh, I'm certainly. Happy to talk. Gun uh, for hire. Gun for hire. Yeah, and uh, yeah. So I moved out of the the actual service delivery space uh, a year ago to indulge my passion for um, my maths background and statistic background to do the uh, or develop algorithms for people for apps in chronic disease. So mm-hmm. that's my sort of main game at the moment. But. I do love and am very passionate about corporate health and uh, I can feel it dragging me back. <laughs> so right. I'm more than happy to talk to anyone that thinks I can add value. Well, mate, you and I have a little coffee now um, <laughs> or a glass of red wine maybe. Mm. We could talk about a few ideas. Thanks, John. Uh, thank you. That's it for this week's episode. For show notes and additional resources, visit skinpatrol.com.au.
And what I wanted to do as a precursor to test that exact thing and interest on it yep. is to stand up and say, here are the three best apps for stress, anxiety, like, and yeah. basically list them 